0: Welcome to Tech Transforms sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the US government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, welcome to Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. And today I am pleased to welcome Travis Rozik. He's the Public Sector CTO at Rubric. And I had the opportunity of hearing Travis speak on a panel at Billington Cybersecurity Summit um, just this past September. And I wanted to hear more from him after that panel. He's had a fantastic career, He started at DISA before he moved to industry as he continues to assist government through the private sector. Um, Travis has a unique opportunity to provide us insights in the ever evolving relationship between government agencies and providers, which I mean, now it is not a, it's not just a lip service kind of thing. Like partnership between industry and government is crucial. And it really is, I think, the only way forward. So, Travis having this experience is it's unique. So he's going to talk to us today about how agencies and providers are approaching cybersecurity, compliance, and data protection. So, with that, welcome to Tech Transforms, Travis.
1: Hi, Carolyn. Uh, pleasure to be with you today. Uh, very flattered, and thanks for the uh, kind introduction.
0: Yeah. Well, it's. I, I we like I said. I'm excited to have you. Um, the comments that you made on the Zero Trust panel were like perfect sound bites. The stuff that you said during that panel, I'm furiously jotting it down during the panel, and um, so I'm counting on you to give me some more sound bites today, Travis. <laughs> okay. No pressure. I'll do my best. <laughs> so, like I said, your career—I mean, it has spanned um, decades. I'm not going to date you but you started on the red team at DISA, and then you moved to growing cybersecurity companies and leading large cybersecurity programs within the DOD. So I wanna start off with, how have you seen um, the relationship between government agencies and cloud providers, and industry for that matter? How have you seen it evolve over your career?
1: Wow. I would say, yeah. um, I would say quite a bit over the years. So I think, um, you know, starting out in the early days, um, you know, fielding capabilities, uh, testing them, going through that process, you know, the government, um, you know, DOD STIGs, for example, certification accreditation process, commercial technologies, vendors didn't understand it. Um, You know, it was. You know, acronym soup, um, the the details, getting exposure and understanding of what the tests were for. Um, So trying to help vendors uh, understand, you know, what some of the compliance requirements were, um, getting through um, the DOD STIG process, um, explaining to them that process um, was was definitely in the early days. Uh, The government wrote STIGs back then, so they were kind of the ones doing the authorship. Um, now the vendors have some of the responsibility to to create the, those kind of guidance on how to harden their platforms. Um, they have much more understanding of you know secure software development, so some of the assessment methodologies. Wait,
0: so DISA takes um, STIGs from industry and writes it in? They they yeah. Let them, okay? Yeah. I so mean,
1: originally DISA would create all of the STIGs. I um, yeah. actually helped write some back in past lives. Uh, but now some of the, the vendors have to um, produce guidance on the stigs because they understand their underlying technology better than the government mm. so how it's mm. actually written and comes together so the mm-hmm. devil's in those details on what what's really exposed um some of it's a little bit of a trust and transparency as well like are they um are they are they doing it the right way but it has to go through a vetting process and different types of assessments and accreditation boards and stuff so so it's it's quite a lengthy process but in the old ways, the government was the hindrance. Like they couldn't keep pace with all of the the you know the technology just exploding, so they couldn't keep pace with that. Um,
0: well, I mean, we still kind of see that, right? That the technology and industry is outpacing um, yeah. the ability to keep up with or or the the certifications. Actually, we're gonna we're gonna come to that. We're gonna talk yes. a little bit about yeah. that. <laughs> so keep yeah. Keep but, going.
1: So in, yeah. So not a new problem, uh, just a different different perspectives. So, mm. yeah, so the vendors, you know, that, that public private partnership, I'm trying to collaborate hardened platforms. Um, you know, obviously there's regulation and other things that have been kind of um, peppered in there over the years. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a really uh, a lot more focused collaboration on building um, these secure solutions. Um, obviously being on the, you know, red team background, yeah, obviously, I, you know, there's more that can be done, I believe. <laughs> so. Like. I've been on the you know kind of the bleeding edge, kind of pushing to do more uh, and harden, you know, building more cyber resiliency. And um, I think fundamentally, um, uh, compliance requirements and it's really about mitigating risk or minimizing risk. So compliance requirements um, don't change as fast as uh, cyber threat actors and their uh, tactic, techniques, and procedures. Uh, so they can evolve much faster than any of the cyber defenders, the companies, et cetera. So you know, I think. Um, you know, being able to up, do software updates, you know, if there is a vulnerability that's found in software, how do you patch it and how do you get it pushed out to your customer base quickly? Um, and then obviously the last couple of years have been um, uh, another challenge or another evolution of uh, cyber threat actors is that whole um, the supply chain attacks, right? So mm-hmm. cybersecurity supply chain, supply chain in general is an, another big attack vector and another um Critical area that the government's really been focused on how to mitigate some of those threats.
0: So, I heard you say there's more collaboration. I mean, it seems like back in the day, the main competitor for industry was GOTS, government technology. Is that still the case, or has it become really more of a partnership and there's governments? more ready to embrace what industry has to offer. Is, is that fair?
1: So, yeah. So um, one of the old DISA directors, um, General Charlie Croom, uh, when I was at DISA, he was kind of a transformative leader and he had the ABCs. Uh, and that was kind of the DISA strategy, adopt, buy, and create. So leveraging commercial technology, the advancement there, integrating, operationalizing it, was top of top of mind leveraging things were already uh, acquired or in use uh, by other services and then buying capabilities and then building them was was like last resort so i think depending on the niche or the focus area that 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 aspect is always you know kind of uh, up for uh, you know argument about what what's the best path but i think system integrators and others you know, some of these technologies been around 20, 30 years. So different types of systems. It's really hard to get a commercial company to go create something that only fits one use case or one customer. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes it makes sense for the, the GOTS approach or it's so specialized or uber sensitive from a national security perspective, you know, where supply chain, security components, you know, everything is tightly controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, those solutions don't scale well. Like you couldn't mass produce it, but for certain use cases, it comes at a premium to build, to build it well and build it right, you know, competing priorities a little bit. So outsourcing everything. And then you're kind of, you know, at the whim of either the, the God's capabilities, or if you outsource all of your services to service providers, you know, it's kind of one and the same, they just have different, you know, one is more of replicating things that are in the commercial world at scale or things that are very uh, specifically built. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point, right? Industries, objectives, often don't completely align with with the governments especially when it comes to on the uh, on the defense side the mission is different and so you, there's there's just enough nuance that at the very least um there has to be some adaptation right for those specific use cases that you mentioned so I-
1: yeah, and to that point, I would say, like my my experience from being different sides of the fence, fielding capabilities, assessing them, operationalizing them, or trying to build them and, and sell them in the commercial and government customer spaces. The the government, you know, it's it's not profit driven, right? So, right, it, you know, in some ways, people scratch their head and you know you have to spend money or you lose it, kind of thing when it comes to the end of the fiscal year. But what what the advantage is? The government is unique in that it can actually study these hard problems and kind of look over the horizon. So, you know, identifying risk and driving uh, innovation in the industry by identifying a problem in the future and then getting commercial companies to go address that problem. So so I think from that perspective, if the government, you know, um, didn't have those resources to study those problems, raise awareness, you know, in the future and driving that innovation like that, that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the commercial side of things, you know, commercial companies they don't they don't study these problems, right? They're they're kind of, I think, you know, uh, depending on the role of the organization or regulation, primarily focused on achieving compliance and you know, pro- you know, being profitable. So I think maybe there's an overdrive to be profitable over some of the short sightedness that that leads to. So they're not really looking that far into the future for certain things because you know it's it's only going to cost them money. So the government. Is great about identifying and studying problems. Uh, industry is great about solving problems. You know, driving that you know capitalism type of culture, uh, building capabilities, selling solutions, and they're more they're quicker to implement, adapt, and deploy capabilities. Where the government is very slow in implementation of these. You know, they can figure out the problem. They're they're very slow and and uh, challenged to actually implement the solution. Yeah, so industry builds a solution. The government identifies the problem, and that's kind of. Trying to short circuit that uh, dynamic is kind of where we run into a lot of non-technical challenges, like mm-hmm. acquisition laws and processes.
0: Right. And it everything you just described is why it is so important for industry and government to have a really tight partnership. They come at things a little bit from a different perspective, a lot from a different perspective. It's like yin and yang, right?
1: Oh uh, Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy.
0: So let's talk about some of the best practices that you've discovered when it comes to having shared cybersecurity models between agencies, and let's get specific cloud providers. You mentioned something before we started recording. I'm going to let you say it about moving to the cloud and security.
1: Yeah, just over the years, kind of looking at, um, you know, in the early days of of cloud and kind of uh, the exploration of that back, uh, I was still in the DoD days, kind of looking at that and security uh, and risks. You know, th- there's a lot of things to consider, but but I think the rapid move to the cloud in the past was really driven not by the security folks. It was driven more by, you know, the IT transformation and, and you know, CFO kind of business driven. Like the, I, I think the myth around, like, it's going to be cheaper to move to the cloud and it's going to be secure or, or it's going to, alleviate the need for security. We so, can just
0: hand it all over. Somebody else will take care of it.
1: Exactly. And we'll save money in the process. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, there, there's no free lunch in life, right? There, there's always there's always implications and costs. So in some use cases moving to the cloud definitely is cheaper, uh depending on what you're using it for and the application.
0: Well uh, would you so say maybe in the long run? Like this is an this is a long end game here. This moving to the cloud is a marathon. It is not a quick hit save money by moving to the cloud, but eventually you're gonna be more secure. You will, well, I don't know, will you save money in the long run?
1: Well, it's all case by case dependent. So, you know, the government over the last several years had a, a cloud first initiative. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was dr- driver more to sponsor the use and leveraging the cloud and, and building the maturity on it. Uh, but now they've kind of transitioned to a cloud smart approach. So, where mm-hmm. you don't have to mandate, I, you know, your applications and stuff to go to the cloud first, uh, it's more of a, a smart approach. So, which cloud provider they offer different capabilities, feature functionality, cost models, you know, expertise. Uh, some things are better to have on premise or in your own environment. Cyber resiliency is another big thing, and connectivity. So, I think, I think cloud smart is definitely the right approach because you know, not, not every, you know, all, not one size fits all, right? So, you kind of mm-hmm. have to. It really the devil's in the details in all of this. So I think in the beginning, people didn't really understand the implications, the technical, non technical components. You know, there is a shared responsibility model. So when when you pass something into uh, a cloud service provider, you know you don't absol- you know you're not resolved all the cyber risk and all the responsibilities there. So I think having that understanding, um, and then over the years, you know, when when there is an issue with a cloud service provider or the customer misconfigures things and data is exposed. Your entire security operations change. Like the 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 the, uh, the processes have to evolve and adapt with your your IT transformation. And I think the IT team, security teams, usually don't get along. Uh, they're different contract vehicles, different organizations. So in some ways, they kind of have competing priorities. Um, they don't. You know, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing. So I think you know we've seen some of those growing pains over the years um commercial industry and in government where um you know even you know we talk about collaboration between you know uh, public private sectors i think even internal to those uh, different teams within within an organization whether it be private or public sector um uh, but yeah so if your data is in this um multi cloud hybrid environment how you conduct incident response um you know, red teaming assessment, cyber risk. I mean, it's, it's a, a much different, um, more complex environment that requires different types of skill sets. Mm. Um, and I think one of the challenges the public sector has is, is uh, recruiting and retaining those skill sets because they're, you know, limited based on the GS scale, right? So there's certain career fields in the government that pay more comparable to commercial industry. Uh, but obviously, um, in this space, I think CISA and some other places are trying to create more of a cyber career field where they can offer um, more uh, competitive pay with respect to commercial industry. Uh, but when there's 800,000 know, job openings in cybersecurity, um, that's, that's still a very difficult challenge.
0: Right. So I think I heard you say, as far as best practices for a cybersecurity practice and partnering with your cloud provider, it's not a... We don't need a security team. We don't need security practices anymore. It's a, we're, we have a cloud provider. They have their security. Oh, look, this is one more layer in our security practices. And not only that, are the security practices, the security posture that we have had, some of it will still apply and we're going to have to adapt to this new environment.
1: A hundred percent. Yes, it, it's the complexity level definitely has gone up. Like the demands and requirements for that complexity uh, and expertise has increased. So, um, yeah, again, going back to studying the problem, understanding it, and making sure you have, you know, in the government, the DoD, dot MLPF, right? So, understanding soup the nuts, you know, from policy and doctrine all the way to the resourcing and staffing side of things, uh, what, what has to be in place. So, tabletop exercises. Uh, Red team type exercises, bringing all the stakeholders together and and kind of wargaming certain worst case scenarios uh, is is how I like to plan. Yeah. (laughs) Mitigate risk. What's the worst possible thing that can happen, and then uh, work backwards. So I think those things are really important for an organization to kind of look at. You know, it's you know from you know cloud service providers. I mean, they're not saying we do everything either, right? So they'll they'll you know they'll come out and bluntly say, like, you know, you're still responsible for protecting the data or what's in the cloud. You know, we're going to protect the infrastructure or the underlying platform, but what happens up there is, you know, you're responsible for doing the monitoring. And then historically, you know, my experience is, uh, you know, contractors, you know, a lot of the work is outsourced and contracts are written for certain skill sets, mm. uh, and it takes time for those contracts to be recompeted or uh, get plus up for money. To add more expertise or diverse skill sets, so you know it's it's um, it's a very complicated environment in the government space to be successful, and you know, kind of that forward-looking process, you know, planning ahead definitely helps a lot. But you know, the way technology evolves, uh, it evolves quicker than you know what the POM cycle is or what the you know three to five year planning is with government uh, budgets. So I think I think that's kind of where part of the dynamic is where commercial industry. You know, if they need a a critical um, item, they can move funding around or or prioritize funding and and make those investments much quicker.
0: So you keep bringing up how complex the cloud has made things. Mm -hmm. So how does AI fit into this? Is AI a problem solver to some of this complexity?
1: So, yeah, so I think, I mean, so moving to clouds and, and SaaS applications alleviates You know, some of the resource constraints and expertise. So there's only a limited number of you know technologists in America, in the US that have clearances, et cetera. So basically uh, when you outsource and leverage the expertise for um, various solution providers in a SaaS application, then that that kind of frees up your own resources to do other things and and solve other problems. So I think, I mean, there's definitely a lot of advantages and economies of scale there. Um, but from an AI perspective, I, I think trying to, so, I mean, it's definitely evolving, but I think, you know, some of those hard tasks and some of those hard challenges, um, it can definitely help accelerate, speed up the process for detecting threats, identifying risk, getting awareness and things, but you still can't take the human out of the loop. So I, I think that's, you know, the other important thing. And in many of these uh, networks environments, understanding the mission, what what's important, where critical systems and applications are. You know, some of those things are just institutional knowledge within organizations. Maybe it's not always written down. Uh, so adapting, a, um, you know, AI to that problem set, you know, it's it's not a, you know, it's not a perfect fit or having the data to build the algorithms correctly is, is also another challenge. So I think, you know, humans in the loop are, are going to be be there for many of these uh, use cases going forward, but it definitely can help address uh, some of the workforce challenges or shortages in, in certain areas.
0: hmm so we've kind of danced around this a little bit with moving to the cloud and the cloud smart initiatives. So let's talk about compliance. It's such a dirty word. Like my, my compliance is, is due. you know, all the training so we can check the box, which oh. honestly, like, that's kind of, that's how I think of compliance. So, and I, I know that it's, probably not the right way to think about compliance. Compliance is there as guardrails, right? But let's talk about how agencies, private sector evaluate re, uh compliance requirements and what are some of the se- cybersecurity measures that can build on those requirements.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean I, I to your point it, it it should be the, you know, the the floor not the ceiling, right? So Achieving compliance shouldn't be the goal of an organization. Unfortunately, I think it is in many cases because that's...
0: Because it takes so much time, Travis, to check those boxes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it's, again, it goes back to the complexity of the problem, right? So, so yes, it does take a long time. I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of the budget is spent just in that process, which I think right? is, you know, kind of a catch-22. It, it's, um, you know, a necessary evil, so to speak. But uh, at some point, you know reinvesting all that manual process and time into, you know, implementing innovation, but we're, you know, we're at the part where, uh, you know, trust, but verify. So, you know, you know, there's still, yeah. I mean, you know, getting to the continuous monitoring state where all this is automated, you know, it, it's the complexity and, and uh, it, it's just a challenge. So wait, uh, wait,
0: are you suggesting that rather than make me take my compliance training every year, there's continuous monitoring to see that. Oh, Carolyn has complied all year. She doesn't need to take this training again. Uh, like, I'm totally dumbing it down. I know, but is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my experiences are. I, I would um, a uh, a mentor of mine in uh, my government days would 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 ask me and my uh, my colleagues. You know, what's what's the purpose of incident response? Like, what what are we really getting from it? And, you know, um, yeah, people would say, well, we could figure out how the attack happened, what, what the impact was, how to fix it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he was like, well, yeah, I, I mean, that's that's, you know, the, you know, that's kind of the direct answer. But really, what's what's the so what piece of it? Um, and then after a lot of deliberation and brainstorming and stuff. Um, the answer that resonated was: It's really your opportunity to assess an organization operationally. So, are there people, processes, and working uh, people, processes and technology actually working together? So, when you're in the process or in the fight, um, can they get data? Can they identify you know things quickly? Can they communicate? Are they collaborating? Can they actually be cyber resilient and cyber ready? So, to me, I think assessing the processes. You know, are you following processes? Are you doing things properly more in that continuous basis is a better measure from Mm -hmm. a cyber risk perspective than just solely focusing on, you know, compliance or check the box? Like, did you take your test? Right. Um, So anyway, to your point, I think the continuous monitoring piece really needs to get into that kind of that operational assessment or looking at the processes uh, in more detail than specifically just, you know, check the box type of approach.
0: Okay, let's let's talk about FedRAMP compliance. So it is, for industry, it's pretty painful (laughs) to get FedRAMP authorized. There's a lot involved. So as companies look to achieve this compliance, this authorization, what advice can you provide for matching the structure of different FedRAMP levels to the needs of organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I mean, I think we could probably do um, not just one session, multiple sessions just on FedRAMP.
0: Oh, I'm um, sh- yes. We could do ongoing forever, Travis. <laughs> you could do like regular training. <laughs> uh,
1: correct. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think in general, uh, you know, seeing FedRAMP evolve over the years, uh, um, it, it's come a long way. I, I think you know the misnomer is the burden is only on on the vendor, right? The vendor has to invest and do things. You know, it's cost cost uh, prohibitive. It's expensive. Like, I mean, it, yeah, it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it takes a long time. But I think, you know, also having on the government side of things, you know, the sponsor that's helping get a vendor through the process is incredibly burdensome. You know, it, it's not like they get extra money. If, uh, you know, it's not like they're compensated any differently. And, you know, it, it's a painful process. And, you know, yeah, getting for both that- sides,
0: For both sides, it's a painful yes. process.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the government folks, you know, given the nature, you know, understaffed, under resources, the expertise, you know, so the, 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 the few that are there to kind of shepherd organizations through the process, you know, it's quite burdensome on them. So, and, and they're not, you know,
0: right. It just just adds to their workload.
1: You know, a lot of vendors are trying to get through the process. So they're, they're inundated with that. Right. And then you get to the program office, who's trying to look at it at, you know, at the last step in the process. Um, And they have some of those same challenges. They're just kind of they're getting it from multiple angles simultaneously. So I think, you know, scaling some of that out, making that process, you know, I think it's too, you know, too linear. Like, you know, it, it's, I think if, if you wanted to look at it from like um efficiency perspective, there's definitely some things that could that can make life easier for all parties involved and in, and in kind of the processes um, in place. So um, yeah, I think it's evolving. It, it's definitely gotten better, uh, but there's definitely room to improve and, you know, it's you know, I think it's more of a procedural thing than, you know, like having having more resources on the government side. Hey, if, if you're going to sponsor or uh, software packages and, and solutions through the FedRAMP process, making that that uh, making investments to make it easier on the government side would be, I think, hugely helpful from my
0: perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's talk about why we really do FedRAMP, right? Like we're doing it. We're doing it for the sake of national security. We're doing it really, and and that national security, when you get down to it, it's the data, right? Uh So the amount of data across the government, the amount of data on my own hard drive (laughs) is just unwieldy. So how important, well, I mean, I think this almost sounds like a dumb question. I was just about to say, how important is categorization and classification when it comes to data security. I mean, I think it's vastly important. I think, I think a better question might be how do you how do you even manage it? I mean, I I used to work for an integrator, a system integrator, and I had to classify everything. And it broke my head. Just that little bit. I mean, maybe AI can help us. <laughs> With the classifications, because sometimes I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what level, of, I don't know if I should burn this, if I should lock it up, if it's fine to just be out in the wild. So, so I guess let's talk about the classification, the categorization, and then just the burden of even doing that on all this data.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, a huge challenge. I mean, if you look at so uh, R- Rubrik has a um, a threat intel focused team focusing um, research around uh, cyber threats and data. Uh, it's called uh, the team is called Rubrik Zero Labs. Um, we we recently just uh, released the report. Well, um, probably by the time this airs, uh, you know maybe a couple months prior, but um, some interesting takeaways from that from a metrics perspective. But
0: what's uh, it called, Rub Rubrik? Uh,
1: Rubrik Zero Labs. Zero what? Uh, labs.
0: Labs. That's yes. the name of the report.
1: Uh, that's the name of the group uh, who okay. produces the report yeah so if, if you uh, if you just Google that, uh, yeah. you'll see all of the historical reports um, some pretty interesting data around trends um so we do some external surveys and research you know not cust- not our customers but just in general uh, across uh, various uh, continents and uh, commercial organizations predominantly uh, but when they just look at the um the proliferation of data within their organization, I mean it's just you know within, like uh, 18 months, you know, we're talking 40, 50% growth of data within their environment. So if you think about that over three to five years, I mean, you know, hundreds of times, you know, know, hundreds of percent growth or, you know, three to five X growth of data within their environment. So as that's moving around the multiple clouds, multiple SaaS applications, on-premise, mobile devices, um, you know, where's the sensitive data, where's the critical data, um, who has that, who has access to that where is that data um, in transit and you know uh, at rest I mean those are from a security perspective you know looking at risk and when there's a compromise or a breach or ransomware attacks or destructive malware attacks uh, bringing systems down you know what was impacted you know uh, mm-hmm. confidentiality integrity availability of the data you know who's had access or even insider threats in the government space you were talking about you know, burning sensitive data, things like that. So, um, you know, from an insider threat perspective, you know, who's had access to things? When did they have access? Where were they? Um, so as the government looks at zero trust architecture, kind of looking at some of those attribute-based um, access controls, um, all the different um, risk calculuses around allowing access under what circumstances and for how long, uh, all come into play. But, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, visibility is, is the first foundational step. So, you know, if you can't answer some of those basic questions on visibility, you're going to struggle protecting it. So if you don't Just know, you, knowing, have company,
0: you, you yeah, can't knowing what you've got, knowing where it is, who's got access, that kind of visibility. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I think, you know, fundamentally looking, um, we're talking about cloud providers, SaaS applications, et cetera. Um, you know, there's I think. Um, uh You know, everyone knows about like NIST 800-53, NIST cybersecurity framework, and other other standards that exist. Um, There's a NIST publication um, called uh, Special Pub 800-160, and it's uh, focusing on building um, cyber resilient systems. And I don't think that one gets enough attention and focus, Uh, but but, uh, based on some of my background and experiences, It has some really key principles around, you know, how do you build systems to survive a cyber attack? So in in the military, the government systems, you know, we're anticipating planning for that worst case scenario. So if there is a cyber attack uh, or other type of disaster um, or kinetic type of effect, um, how can the system or the the environment survive and and still enable the the troops and others to do the mission? So um, uh, within that guidance. from this, it has four major goals for for building cyber resilient systems: uh, anticipate, uh, withstand, recover, and adapt. Um, anticipate,
0: and, withstand, recover, and adapt. Correct. Okay. Yes.
1: So I think you know, kind of looking at um, uh, you know the cloud environments, um, SaaS applications, zero trust architecture. I, I think like applying those four goals to everything. Um, or at least the critical systems, um, I I think is another key component. So knowing what you have, who has access, how do you determine if there is, you know, worst case scenario, an insider threat, um, a supply chain attack, right? Um, So um, if you can't trust the system, so if you put too many eggs in one basket, right, you don't have, um, you know, uh, various fail safes. Like if one vendor or one solution or one, when environment goes down, like how detrimental is that? Are you, is your mission success 100% reliant on that one thing or that one vendor uh, or one application? So I think building some of that redundancy resiliency in that you have fail safes, um, uh, defense in depth, right? So if one detection methodology fails, uh, do you have other things around it to identify that it is compromised and potentially is lying to you, right? So. To me, I think having a false sense of security, um, you know, in anything we build, um, overly trusting things uh, or having a false sense of security um, is is probably our Achilles' heel. Um, so I think trying to drive complacency out—that's probably like my my pet peeve when I meet organizations that say, "Hey, we're secure already," or "We're compliant," or "We're secure. Uh, we don't need to do any more." That, that's kind of like, you know, from a red teamer perspective, that's kind of um, that's when you know like you're, you're not going to have any trouble getting into that organization. <laughs>
0: well, and I think that's where um, the whole compliance thing can be really a detriment because they think, or we think, okay, I've checked all these boxes, I'm safe. And I was just thinking about, so this survey that you guys do that the, the Zero Labs does, um, mm-hmm. you use that to build up your cybersecurity posture, right? You look at all the different attacks that you've seen come in and say, all right, are we able to so you're anticipating what might happen to you um you're going to look at your system see how you can withstand it how you can recover and adapt so that's where you do you take that report and make it actionable for your environment is that
1: uh, yeah i mean that that's what organizations should be doing 100% so anticipate is understanding the threats staying um you know current on all the evolving threats uh, obviously the government sector has uh, classified data sources as well but um, you know today's era compared to 15 20 years ago there's a lot out in commercial industry um, that you know or most organizations can leverage so um, I, I think under there's no shortage of threat intel and threat data that's you know publicly available today compared to you know 15 20 years ago right um, but I think the anticipation part coupled with you know. Um, the compliance side. So making it more risk-focused, you know, like the risk management framework, things like that. Uh, but I think ultimately it comes down to, um, you know, answering those four questions. Can you anticipate, are you anticipating these types of threats or worst case scenarios? Um, mm-hmm. what, what are you doing and what investments are you making to be able to withstand, you know, ransomware attacks, um, you know, disinformation, um, you know, data modification, data corruption, um, you know, data availability, like uh, destructive malware, like you know, the system is down. You, you can't recover it. How are you going to uh, recover from that? So, kind of going through and making sure from tabletop exercises, processes, um, you know, and then how can you adapt going forward from where your current state is? So, taking those lessons learned and doing con- you know continuous improvement exercises.
0: So that's great advice for CISOs. That I mean, just to go look at that so nist 800-160 um is there any other advice that you would give cisos when it comes to your cybersecurity posture
1: um i mean the the problem you know the the um rapid evolution of technology you know the problem set is just getting bigger um, so, um you know just patience perseverance um you know it's it's a um definitely a difficult difficult uh, job for for most CISOs, right the, uh, they have all the burden but they probably don't have all the authorities budget uh control and influence that they would like so I think um I would say not so much recommendations for them um other than empathy uh I would say um you know policymakers, um you know commercial companies you know the CEOs the b- corporate boards um and then you know folks on the hill like you know, kind of uh, reprioritizing, figuring out this pecking order and uh, empowering, enabling, um, you know, uh, to get to the change and the resources that are necessary to to have this positive impact. So as as we as a, a society and nation become more dependent on IT systems, um, you know, start relying on artificial intelligence to do things for us to make life easier and better, you um, you know, looking at the uh, anticipating the attacks that are going to be against that, right? Um, you know, kind of worst case scenario, Terminator movies with Skynet and you know, like you know, doomsday scenarios. So, like, you know, <laughs> trying to prevent those things from happening. But it all starts with you know being able to help, like CISOs be successful. Help help them, you know, be able to recruit and retain uh, talent that understands these problems. Um, holding organizations uh, and, and vendors and such accountable. So. Enabling them to be able to uh, make change in acquisitions more quickly, um, you know, kind of the uh, the lowest cost technically acceptable models um, that the government was doing for a while, um, you know, maybe save a little bit of money in the in the near term for, for the government, uh, but you know, it had long term consequences. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think the kind of that race to the bottom, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you get what you pay for, so to speak. So, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to um, you know shrink margins, shrink other things from other organizations. You're you're cutting out the overhead to invest back into security and do other things. Um, And it's not just cyber risk. You know, for companies commercially, it's it's a business risk, and that business risk is tied to to cyber risk. Um, And the government side, you know, it's mission risk. The mission risk um, is you know is part of that is cyber risk. And I think trying to translate to folks that don't understand the domain or understand. They still don't think it's possible certain attacks can happen, or threat actors can do this, or that they would be a target. So I think there's a lot of assumptions um, that have been in place that you know, as long as I've been doing cybersecurity, that still exists today. So I think um, you know, continuing to beat the drum and raise awareness and educate is is still uh, critical.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to take us to our tech talk questions now. Since since we've got Valentine's Day coming right up my least i don't even think it should be a holiday but it's it exists so here's what we're going to talk about travis i want to know what piece of technology you love the most
1: so um yeah everybody likes chocolate doesn't matter what shape it's in it could be a heart or a a tree (laughs) um yeah i mean tech you know just you know, living in the DC area, I, I think, you know, traffic jams or any large metropolitan area, uh, you know, a crash or anything like that, and just poor driving techniques and um aggressive drivers and causes backups. Like I would say the probably the thing that causes me the most amount of, of time in my life wasted is sitting in traffic. So I think autonomous driving, um is probably what I'm most excited about at some point seeing, uh, automobiles and, uh, be more efficient, um, on the roads. And, and, you know, as we worry about the safety of that, I would say there's, you know, all the human error and, and the deaths associated with, with, uh, auto crashes and such, um, are probably even more risky than any technology risk associated with kind of the autonomous driving. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I think I'm more interested in a very, you know, um, Uh, excited to kind of see that evolve more quickly. Um, I think it'll be, it'll be good for for, for, uh, society as as a whole.
0: Yeah. Okay. See, I would have just gone straight for, I want a teleporter, (laughs) but we can take it baby steps, Travis. (laughs) We'll start with autonomous driving and then teleport. Um,
1: Well, That's that's back to the ABCs uh, for my government days, Uh, Adopt or kind of, uh, you know, uh, buy what's somewhat, uh, Near term.
0: That's right. And the create
1: side is the longer term.
0: (laughs) Yeah, keep keep your feet on the ground. Good, good. Well, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, um, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, Great speaking with you today. Uh, Very much enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it was a fun way to spend an hour. And thanks to our listeners. Please share and smash that like button. And we will talk to you next time on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more tech transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.